Welcome to the Exit Coach Radio Show, the show for baby boomer business owners who are looking for cutting-edge information as they plan their 3- to 10-year business succession and exit. Every week, we interview top professional advisors for their best tips, strategies, and precautions so you can be well-planned. And don't miss our one-minute Exit Coach Tip of the Day on ExitCoachRadio.com. And now, here's your host, the Exit Coach, Bill Black. Welcome. Thanks for listening. I'm very excited to introduce my next guest. Let me ask you a question before we get into this. Are you focused on your revenue? Uh, Because our next guest believes so strongly that you should focus on your revenue that Michael Pierce named his company Focused on Revenue. And we're going to talk about creating high-performance sales teams so that you can focus on your revenue. So get a notepad, get a pen, get ready to take some notes. And welcome to the show, Michael Pierce. Thanks for joining us today. Good day, Bill. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on. And before we get into being focused on revenue, tell us about your background and how you came to start the company. Well, in, in uh, trying to make that a little bit uh, short because I'm I'm an old man now, uh, okay. but I had I had the opportunity to work for some of America's largest companies and and get to run a profit center within those companies, so. They were they were just terrifically good training grounds for me, and uh, and then about eight years ago, uh, I decided to take some of those experiences and share them with people uh, who hadn't had such an opportunity to learn from the very best. And and so as you did that, um, what were some of the biggest impediments to sales that you that you were seeing out there? Well, they, there, there's a few things that 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 happen a lot, unfortunately, and uh, and what I see perhaps more often than anything is a disconnect between the company's strategy and the pay plan for their salespeople. So they've designed their pay plan uh, largely because they don't have experience on how to design a pay plan. And so they say, well, this is what uh, the guy was making at such and such a company. Or they say, if he did really well there, I'm sure he'll do well for me. And of course, it's entirely different products and entirely different culture. And so those things aren't necessarily true. Uh, And then they look at the pay plan and they say, I'm telling my salespeople what I want them to do, but they're doing something totally different. Well, it's because there's a disconnect uh, between what they're asking to do and, and how they're paid. And if you really want somebody to behave, impact their feedback. That's how people behave. They'll do exactly what they're paid to do. So a lot of times, just getting that alignment in place makes a huge difference in the organization. So what are some of the the biggest mistakes with pay plans that are being made? Are they giving them too much uh, as, a say, a, a, a salary and not enough directed to the, the compensation as regarding the performance? Or what, what would you say you see? You know, I think that's a really – that's kind of a good question that a lot of people ask. Uh, and the answer is it's not – it's not answerable uh, within the context of this is a general profile people should adopt uh, because I think each business has its own nuances and distinctions. But there's a difference between, for example, a transactional business um, and a relationship business in how you want to pay for people. There's a difference in in people who are with their customers uh, on a long-term sale and people who have a short-term high-volume sale, even though they might be both relationship sales. So what I found is it's really important to look at the business and say what are the goals, the strategies uh, of this business, and let's design the pay plan and the incentive plan 
to meet that business. Sometimes no incentive plan is good, and sometimes a very large percentage of their pay should be pay, uh, should be incentivized. But I think it depends on how you align that with the goals and objectives of the business. Very good point, and I uh, didn't mean to be too general in that. I, I grew up in the life insurance world. You sold, you got paid, you you could eat. That basically that was that was a good incentive plan. It worked very well for a lot of years. You know, and there's a, and there's a there's that's a really good point, Bill, because there are those personalities, uh, and that's something that we can test for and look for. There are those personalities who thrive in that kind of a high risk, high performance environment, and there are other personalities that are scared to death of it. And so part of being sure we define the right pay plan is also being sure that we hire the right person for the right pay plan. Exactly what I was going to say as a counterpoint to that, because uh, there was a revolving door at the front door. There were people who thought that they could could uh, handle that kind of a pay structure, but you can't go very long and not be successful uh, and uh, expect to stay in that type of an environment. People are expecting, uh, you know, if you could pay your landlord that way, it'd be one thing, but... Uh, uh, you, you got a fixed, you have a fixed expense world, and you have to make money. So, as a matter of fact, I think a lot of those firms changed their pay structure, and they started seeing mediocre results because of it. They would support people with a base pay, and then say, "Well, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll give you less on the incentive side." And they started, they they drifted towards mediocrity, which meant they had people who stayed longer, but they didn't perform. Because right. they weren't the kind of high-performance risk takers they really needed. The other thing I see, by the way, in the same sort of category, um, is one of the worst uh, behaviors on sales leadership, and that is what's it going to take to close this deal this quarter or to get this deal closed this year, uh, whatever their their sales measurement period is. And and you know, Bill, it's such a terrible mistake because a a, a lot of really bad things happen. Uh, one is the customer realizes that he really didn't get the best price after all. So now we've lost the trust bond. That's an important part of a relationship business. Uh, we, we've made the customer violate his own internal processes to meet our urgent goals, and they resent that. You've made the customer go outside his normal processes and therefore likely to a more senior executive to get permission to waive their processes and take advantage of this new special offer. And now the, the poor purchasing person has to, in a way, admit to his boss that he didn't do nearly as good a job in negotiating. Uh, we've now trained the customer. He knows exactly when to buy, and that's going to be at the end of the quarter or the end of the year because he'll get a special deal. It's just the worst possible thing sales managers can do, and I see it done over and over again. Oh, that's that's a great tip. You, you influence and create certain uh, buyer behaviors by your actions. Uh, so are there fundamentals all salespeople should respect? Well, I think there are. You know, I think uh, we, we like to look at things and say, can we, can we find the common denominator? And even though we're in a world today that is that with so much change, I think there are some fundamental laws of sales that are likely never to change. And, and the violation of that trust bond, the lack of respect for the buyer's process, is a big one. We should never do that. Um, there, are, there are some of these things that say we really need to be sure that, they, that we pre prepare a proposal that's a win for both organizations. We have to make money when we sell this, and the customer has to find out why, he's, uh, why what's, it's good for him. And so mm -hmm. an awful lot of sales training is done to, to train a salesperson 
in how to speak articulately about the nuances of their product, the bits and bytes of the technology world of their product. And we fail to spend any time trying to teach our salespeople the art of listening. Do you really know what your customer wants? Because, frankly, oftentimes the customer doesn't know what the customer doesn't know. So he's coming to the salesman hoping that he's found an expert, someone who could actually provide a solution that might exceed his expectations, that might do more than he hoped it would do because the expert knows what's possible and the customer only knows what he needs. So the art of listening, uh, of being able to say, I know exactly what it is you want, I've listened to you, and I can show you a solution that exceeds your expectations, we should spend a lot more time with our salespeople being sure that they've really listened carefully to their customers and know how to listen. Um, and the way we do that oftentimes, when someone has the idea that our guys aren't listening enough, here's a list of the 20 questions you want to be sure you ask. And they don't engage in conversation. They engage in interrogation. And that doesn't, that doesn't engender customer confidence either. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Uh, it is important to have uh, a feel for what your customer-centric questions should be, but not not just for the sake of asking the questions in an interrogation. You, they should really be uh, focusing on, on how, not only what the customer is probably saying, but how they answer that question and really uh, really thinking about that, how it's going to benefit. Well, you know, sometimes I hear the word uh, that we all do today, that, that we want people to be authentic. And so I'll ask people, exactly what do you mean by, by authenticity? What do you mean by being authentic? And, and I've decided that in the commerce world, being authentic means that the that I literally want to hear what you have to say. I'm not busy trying to orchestrate my next response in the middle of your sentence. Does that make mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. That you're really focusing and paying attention, not thinking about what's next. And I think that's a that's a good definition in the commercial world for being authentic. You know, do, would it be would it behoove many salespeople to take the time to feed back what they hear back to their customers as they hear it to make sh- to to create that bonding that bonding uh, platform before they move forward? It would be really good if their sales leadership, to your point, uh, ask them those kinds of penetrating questions. Not to ask the question, is this deal going to close this quarter? What's it going to take to get this deal to close this quarter? If they really ask the more important and more penetrating questions about what are the customer's requirements and have we satisfactorily uncovered them? Because if we satisfactorily match our uh, solution to their requirement and it's done in a way that's economically justified, we'll win the business, particularly if we don't try to make them change their processes just to buy from us. Yeah, I kind of picture it as as a uh, a series of platforms that you you have to get up to the next platform before you can move ahead to the next one. And if you try to skip it and jump up to the top, you're just going to fall on your face. Uh, it, it's great stuff, Michael. Great analogies. And what what can be done to assure a high performing salesperson is being hired when you're when you're looking at someone? What are some of the traits of those people? Well, there are there are a number of organizations. There's one that I've used for quite a while, and they literally are able to do to take a 45-minute uh, online test, and the results of that is a terrifically accurate profile of what you can expect out of that salesman. And it, it's not designed to be a, a weed-out uh, solution, but because it, although it can be, but it's really designed to say these are the things you can expect out of this salesperson. So don't be surprised. These are the strengths and the weaknesses, and and one of the biggest failings of sales leadership today 
is that they fail to view sales as a collaborative effort. It's kind of like they hire the sales guys and, you know, to the lions, Christian. But really what they ought to be saying is that this salesman I've hired has these fundamental strengths that are powerful, but there are some things that aren't so strong. And so I'm going to come along as his sales leader and come beside him in a collaborative effort to be sure that we win the business, serve the customer satisfactorily. And, and not make this sales guy an island unto himself that's constantly trying to justify his numbers. My job as a sales leader is to make sure he's successful. So these are these are tests that are benchmarked specifically for people in the in the field of sales? Well, they've they've developed them over a wide spectrum of, of occupations okay. and endeavors. I use them really for sales and sales leadership because I I just say this is this is exactly who we're getting. This is how this person will be how they will respond to what kind of management best, and here's how we can be sure they're successful. Because that's if fantastic. we hire a salesperson, what do we all say? You know, that's that's a hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment, pick a number, and mm-hmm. and it's and it's a year's investment. And if we're wrong, man, that's a deep hole we've dug. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're not getting yeah, if we're not getting our results, we need to know quickly so we can start getting our result because you can't go on. You can't support unproductive salespeople very long. So in, in a situation like that, are there also tests that would indicate a good sales manager? Yes, there are. Uh, of course, we've all learned the lesson that, you know, really great salespeople don't, don't make necessarily great sales managers. Right, um, right. But, yeah, but there are similar what? things that would, that would test for that leadership, Kate Betty. It's the, the issue, I think, is that, that highly incentive, highly individualized, really aggressive, self-confident salespeople uh, find it hard to collaborate with people. They just really do it themselves. Just let me go. Let me do it. And so that transition from I'm out here in the field and I can make it happen to I now have to work through other people to make it happen is really a tough transition. That's a very clear statement and really makes a lot of sense of to me especially, but to anybody who's wondered why they couldn't take their best salesperson and turn them into a sales manager, it, it's because they're, uh, they're they're a wild horse. They don't they don't want to be tamed yeah. and and brought back in. Makes a lot of sense. And so, Michael, they good as they are. Yeah, leave them alone. <laughs> Let them go, <laughs> Michael. When when you're uh, uh, working with uh, clients, uh, could you give us a client story about a situation where you came in and worked with the firm and and what their results were, just to illustrate for our, our listeners? Uh, sure. There's there's sort of any number of them. Um, I can remember one time, and, and this is kind of an ancient history story, so now forgive me for that, but one time I was called into uh, a room, and uh, there was about 11 people in there, and it was a large bank, and they were saying that they really didn't know uh, if they were still in the banking business, they were likely in the real estate business because they had branches all over, and and the turnover was high, and the um, overtime was high, and the training costs were high, and it was just queuing theory didn't work. They had too many tellers in one branch, not in another, and they just they just had to solve this issue. And they wanted to know if we could come together as a group and solve this issue. So we all sort of introduced ourselves to each other and decided that the best thing to do is go out in the branch out they did for a living, even though we thought we knew. And we found out that uh, about 72% of all the transactions in a branch at that time, was a relatively small withdrawal or relatively small deposit. So we went to the people that made our night depository boxes, and we said, could you make a machine that would spit money out as well as take money in? (laughs) And they said, yeah, yeah, I think we could. I think we could. 
So we developed this. We went back with the concept, and we said, okay, we, here's, here's what we think you ought to do. We ought to develop this thing. We're going to call it an automated teller machine, uh, and it would give people money because in those days, banks were open from 10 to 3, Monday through Friday, and that's when you got your money. And so they could actually come that night and get money that night. And we settled on $40. It was two brand-new $20 bills, largely because the computer systems in those days were not sophisticated enough to understand instantly what a, what a customer's balance in his checking account was. So we said, okay, if we only give the ability to, to access this machine to people who have been a customer for a year and never had an overdraft, then the worst case we're going to suffer is a $40 loss. And that's probably not likely because of their historic behavior. So let's make $40 the limit they can withdraw. And, and really, that should help our business a lot. And they didn't like the idea at all. It was a terrible idea. We've spent many, many years telling our customers we will know them, we will greet them, we will say hi to them, and they're going to come deal with some machine. This is the worst idea I've ever heard. Well, we were able to prevail, and they gave us a sample branch, and all of a sudden, lots of customers from lots of other branches were coming because at 10 o'clock at night, they could get $40. And it's one of those things when I say sort of the law of serendipity, you know, when, when what you discover is better than that which you sought. In this case, what we were trying to do was solve this operational efficiency problem at a branch. We didn't really realize uh, the, the nature and scope of what was to become an ATM. I don't think that idea is ever going to catch on, Michael. That's uh, it's, uh, a bad idea. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, that just that just goes to show your uh, your innovation and how you help again your customers by thinking outside the box, so to speak. Uh, or creating a new box in that case. And so uh, uh, give our listeners a couple tips or ideas on how they can focus their revenues, just some brief ideas or tips or uh, precautions for them. I think that, uh, that organizations need to be uh, introspective, Bill. I think that a lot of organizations, we've, we've all learned the art of Kaizen, you know, making relatively small improvements every day. But sometimes we need transformation, as in the last example I gave you. Sometimes, no matter how much better buggy whip you make, there's just no demand for it. So sometimes organizations need to take their chances, and I think that's a really good role for an external board uh, to look at this and say, we really need to change the nature of our business uh, if we're going to survive. And, and I think an awful lot of people continue to do business the way we always have. And that chance to step out of the forest, step away from the trees and look at the forest and reassess, uh, really needs to be done, and it needs to be fairly oftenly. Uh, another thing that needs to happen is that, that business leaders need to continually remind, routinely remind their employees what the goals of the business are. You know, we, we talk a lot about mission statements and vision statements, and we work those to death, and we get them all done, and we're happy with all the wordsmithing, and then we put them uh, away, and we never look at them again. And what we really need to do is constantly remind people, this is the mission, this is the reason that we're in business, and this is what we're doing. We, don't, we do it a little bit sometimes with new employees, but I think it ought to be done routinely. Uh, and then I think we need to come along our, our side, our business, and we need to be collaborative. The, the days of being uh, to have these individual islands performance, it's over, and we need to be nimble and quick, and the, the way to be nimble and quick is to have more people focused on the problem, and that's the nature of collaboration. And I think those three things, you know, we can go on with, with many others, but those are critical, I see, in an awful lot of organizations. 
That's a fantastic wisdom in just a couple minutes there, uh, Michael, and we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom and your experiences, and I I would love to have you on another time so we can we can go deeper on some of these because I know you have a lot of great stories, uh, and I really appreciate your, your wisdom. Now, you're a Vistage speaker, I understand, so you're available for groups who want to have you come in and talk to their business leaders? I do that, and I and, I, and that's typically the topic. What, how do we, how do we encourage, enhance, uh, and achieve revenue performance? How do we accelerate the revenue model? Uh, and I love sharing those stories. And and those, and in a in that kind of a setting, you get to deal with a relatively a smaller group of of business owners, and we can drill into their own issues. It's it's really rewarding. Yeah, and I and I can tell it goes well beyond any kind of a textbook learning. You've been there, done that, and you're bringing that to the table now. So, how do our listeners get in, or or Vistage leaders, let's say, get in touch with you best? Uh, my website is focusedonrevenue.com, um, and it's past tense focusedonrevenue.com, uh, and all my contact information is there, as, as well as some a lot of publications that I put out. So they can. I, I hope that it's actually a website that. Uh, becomes va- valuable to somebody versus just a place to contact me, but they, but it's all there. Michael Pierce from Focused on Revenue. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great information. I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to the next time we speak. Great pleasure with you, Bill. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after this, so please stay with us. You're listening to ExitCoachRadio.com the information station for age 50-plus business owners, where we're interviewing top advisors for their best tips, ideas, and precautions so you can be well-planned. We upload new one-minute tips every day. ExitCoachRadio.com. Come listen for a minute. Does thinking about what will happen to your business if you're gone keep you awake at night? Will you get the price you need from your business to carry you through retirement? The BEI Network of Exit Planning Professionals is the world's leading advisor network with the power to help business owners transition out of business on their own timeline and terms. Ask your most trusted advisor to create a BEI plan for you or visit us at ExitPlanning.com. That's ExitPlanning.com. You're listening to ExitCoachRadio.com, the information station for age 50-plus business owners, where we're interviewing top advisors for their best tips, ideas, and precautions so you can be well-planned. We upload new one-minute tips every day. ExitCoachRadio.com. Come listen for a minute. Thank you for listening to Exit Coach Radio. 